chapter 21, verse 23. Once again, that's Matthew chapter 21, verse number 23. And it reads, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? One of my favorite things with the high school class is, uh, if you ask any of the kids in the high school class, is something that I always try to encourage, something I always try to leave time for, it's questions and answers. Right, guys? Yes, they're nodding. Yes, questions and answers. I, I give them scrap pieces of paper, and we have pencils and pens, and, and at, whenever they think of questions throughout class, any time, they'll write it down and, and hand it to me. Or sometimes they're, they're so excited about whatever question they thought of, they'll just blurt it out right in the middle of class. Sometimes we'll, we'll talk about it right then. Sometimes we'll talk about it a little bit later. Or I encourage them even throughout their lives, every day, whenever a question comes up, they can either text it to me or write it down and we'll talk about it sometime during class. This is something that I really appreciate about the Church of Christ, the, the Lord's Church, in that we are not afraid to ask any question about the Bible. We're not afraid to answer any question about the Bible either. Okay? That's something that, that is, I believe, very unique in the religious world. It's very unique. But this is something that I appreciate very much. Okay? So our lesson tonight is sort of in that same vein. Okay? Our lesson tonight is not answering touch questions. It's answering tough questions, okay? Answering tough questions or difficult questions, if you will. This is something that we didn't really cover last time I was before you guys, but is something that whenever we're studying with anybody, this will inevitably, pretty much every single time, this will come up. Some tough question will come up, or at least we fear some tough question will come up, and that stops us from maybe studying. You, we might think, well, I'm not ready for every question they might ask, or they, they might ask me something that I just don't know. So even though I have this opportunity to study with somebody, I'm going to put it off until I feel better prepared, and then we put it off and put it off, and then we just never end up scheduling the study. Okay, but That's happened with me probably more than once, but I want to encourage us to not let that be a roadblock. Okay. We, we answered last time uh, the, the favorite excuse, I just don't have anybody to study with. And if you weren't here, if you forgot, come see me after worship and, and we'll talk. Okay? It's very easy to find someone to study the Bible with. It's very easy. You don't even have to leave your home. Okay? Yeah, you don't even have to leave your home. But sometimes the fear or the anticipation of these tough questions will stop us from taking that step, from studying with someone. So that, that's why I sort of want to talk about this today. So when considering how we should answer difficult questions, the first thing we should do is look at our Lord and Master. As, as Nate just read in Matthew 21, uh, Jesus was often confronted during his time here on earth with some, some pretty difficult questions. And, and the people who asked him these questions, they, they didn't always have good intentions, if you can believe it, Okay. Sometimes they would come to him, testing him, tempting him, trying him, trying to trap him, okay? Now, likely, whenever we're studying with someone, any question that we're asked, 
It's probably going to be coming from good intentions, from, from someone who's, who's honestly seeking. Every once in a while we might meet some, some person who's you know, just trying to stick it to you, asking you a tough question, but that, that's very rare. Okay? That's very, very rare. Okay? So let's look at Matthew 21. Matthew 21, we'll, we'll start at verse 23 where, where Nate uh, read. Now, when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which, if you tell me, I will likewise, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question too. If you answer it, I'll give you the answer you're looking for. That's what Jesus is doing. Okay, uh, and he asks his question. The baptism of John, verse 25. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? And then the, the, uh, the elders and, and chief priests, they reasoned among themselves saying, well, if we say it was from heaven, then they, they knew what, what, what the response would be. They would be stuck. They would be trapped just like they were trying previously to trap Christ. Okay? If we say he was from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? Okay, they saw where this question was leading. Okay? But if we say, verse 26, from men, and then we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. Okay? So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. We just don't know. They did know, but... They were afraid to give the right answer. He said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the first thing we notice here is Jesus didn't always answer any and every question. Jesus didn't always answer any and every question. What, what Jesus did was he determined the why. He determined why the question was being asked. Okay? Sometimes that could be more important than the actual question itself. Okay? So when we're asked a question, well, why do you ask that? Get more information, and that can help you answer the question, or even that can help you determine where this person is coming from, what kind of heart they have, and if you should even answer it. Okay? Why? Every question regarding God in the Bible ultimately deserves an answer, okay? but not every person who asks a question deserves an answer, if that makes sense. So every question about the Bible... It, it's a good question. It's something that deserves to be studied and looked at and answered as honestly as we're, as we're capable of doing. Okay? But not every person, as we see here, deserves our time and effort and so on. Okay? So that's the first thing we should notice. Okay? Jesus didn't refuse to answer their question because it was a bad question. He didn't say, well, no, guys, that's a bad question, so I'm not going to answer that. Basically, what he ended up saying is, you have a bad heart. So I'm not going to answer you. Okay. He refused to answer because their hearts, they were so hard, their conscience was so seared that they wouldn't have accepted the answer no matter what answer was given. Okay. They wouldn't have accepted no matter how much evidence was supplied to support the answer that was given. Okay. So Jesus just didn't bother. Okay. Jesus didn't bother. And there's something very important to learn from that. Okay. So... That said, is there ever a time where someone we think someone someone's question is coming from a bad place or if they don't have a good and honest heart, is there ever a time when we need to answer their question anyway? 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Sometimes when someone posing the question doesn't have the right motives or if they don't have a good and honest heart, we still might need to answer them. Not for their sake, it's not going to do them any good, but for those who might be around, those who might be hearing you. Okay. Sometimes this happens in class, in school, kids, guys, yeah. That This can happen in school. This happened to me in school, okay? Or at work, or at the grocery store, wherever we are, okay? It's not answering the question for their sake. It's answering the question for those who may be listening or those who that person might have an influence over, okay? Take, for instance, uh, Matthew 19. We read of the rich man. Matthew 19, 16 through 22 The rich man comes, and he asks Jesus a question. And at first, it seems like the rich man has a good and honest heart. Okay, At first, that's what it seems like. But Jesus knew this man's heart, just as he knew the hearts of the chief priests and the elders. Okay? But Jesus answered the rich man's question. It wasn't for the rich man's benefit, we know, because he didn't listen to Jesus. He, He went away sorrowful. Okay? But Jesus answered for the sake of those around about. And then Jesus later went on uh, to drive home a very powerful point because of that man's question. Okay? Even if the rich man didn't get a single thing out of it, his disciples certainly did. Okay? And we get something very important out of the rich man's question. Even if the rich man never repented the rest of his life. Okay? So the first thing to think of is why the question is being asked. Who's doing the asking? The second thing we'll look at in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, the second thing is if we accurately and appropriately answer questions according to the Bible, it can stop the mouths of the enemies of Christ. Mark chapter 12, we see here that Jesus does such a thoroughly, exceedingly great job at answering their questions that verse 34, no one even dared to ask him a question anymore. He did such a good job at answering their questions that they were afraid to ask him any more questions. So it stopped the mouths of the enemies of Christ. So now that we've seen how Jesus handled certain situations, certain difficult questions, let's look at tonight some some questions that we have perhaps thought of ourselves or we've had asked of us, and whether we knew or not, we'll look at the answers, okay? So uh, before we do that, where did I get these questions? I didn't just come up with them, okay? Basically what I did was I went on, on Google, I went online, and I typed in questions Christians can't answer, okay? And all sorts of stuff came up, and there's people out there who were very confident in their question-asking ability because most of the ones that came up, they were very easy to answer. They, you know, they say, oh, this is a list of 100 questions that Christians can't answer, but they were really easy to answer. But I did pick a few of them that you know, weren't so easy. Okay, some, some that, that might cause us to think a little bit. So that's, that's sort of how I uh, got, got these questions. Okay, And if you find yourself thinking, well, these questions are so easy. I thought you got the hard ones. Well, then just pat yourself on the back for, for being so well studied. Good job. Okay, You're, you Just go study with someone now. Okay? You have the knowledge. Share it with people. If you find yourself, you don't know all of them or maybe one or two of them, that's fine. Hopefully this will encourage us to study further. Okay? It'll, it'll give you a better idea of where you are in your knowledge of, of the Bible, and, and hopefully it'll make you more comfortable in, in, in answering these questions. So, question number one. Question number one. Why does a good God let bad things happen? This question uh, is a good one. Why does a good God let bad things happen? How would you answer it? Think to yourself right now. If someone asked you that during a Bible study, 
do, do you feel yourself getting a little sweaty and panicky and not really know what to say? Or do you, are you formulating in your head, well, this, 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 this? How would you answer that? Okay. Can you imagine that this question and ones like it could be a stumbling block, a roadblock to someone obeying the gospel or someone remaining faithful? Why does a good God let bad things happen? How can I believe in a God, they might say, that would let little children get cancer? How could I believe in a God that would let this terrible thing happen to me? How can I believe in a God that would allow wars or natural disasters or, or that would let drunk drivers take lives? How can I believe in a God that would let those things happen? And on and on we can go. Can you imagine that, that these questions could stop someone from getting to heaven? These questions deserve an answer. How would we answer? First thing we should realize about these kinds of questions is that bad things are largely the byproducts of things that people like you and me freely make. Okay? Bad things, when bad things happen, oftentimes they're simply consequences of decisions that I've made and decisions that you've made. Okay? That's, that's part of it. Okay? That, that's, that's the first part of it. Okay. It would be impossible for us to have free will, the ability to choose right, without also having the ability to choose wrong. It would be impossible. You have to have both sides of that coin, or it wouldn't actually be free will. We wouldn't have any choice in the matter. Okay. So, it, it is a loving God that gives us the power to choose. It's a loving God that not only gives us the power to choose, but he also gives us all the tools necessary to know the difference between right and wrong and encourages us to choose what's right and does everything within his power sort of forcing us to do what is right. He encourages us with all that he can to do what is right and avoid what is wrong. But some people will still stubbornly choose wrong. Okay, That can't, uh, that can't be something that... Uh, that we count as a fault against God. Okay, Second Corinthians chapter two and verse eleven says that we're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices, and one of the devil's greatest tools is that of blaming God for something that he, the devil, has done. Okay, let me say that again. One of the devil's greatest tools is getting people to blame God for something that the devil has done. Okay. God should not be held responsible for the bad decisions that I make because he's given me every opportunity to make the right decision, okay? Second, why does a good God uh, let bad things happen? Second, here we go. Uh, something we might forget, there's often great value. There's often great value to be found in difficult situations, okay? There's great value to be found in difficult situations. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 Peter says something interesting here. Uh, chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Okay, Peter, why should they rejoice in the face of various trials? Why? Why, Peter? Give us the answer. And he does. Okay. Ultimately, he says, previously, uh, as well as later in verse 9, 
that they would receive the end of their faith. That is its goal or its aim. They would receive the end of their faith if, if they would endure uh, by going through these various trials. Okay, And that is, verse 9, the salvation of their souls. The trials they would go through would help get them to heaven. The trials they would go through would help get them to heaven. Okay. Another example, if you, if you take a lump of metal, okay, just dug it out of the ground, wherever they dig metal out of the ground, I'm not sure exactly how all that works, but just a big rock, basically. It's got ore and all that stuff in it. It's basically useless. It, it can be a paperweight, you know, can hold stuff from blowing away in the wind, but apart from that, or doorstop, it's not very useful. It's basically useless. Okay. A lump of metal fresh out of the ground, basically useless to us, right? Right. Okay, but if we apply a little bit of heat... If we bang on it for long enough, if we grind it against something that is abrasive and rough, we put it through this rough experience and we hone it and work it and bend it, then it can be a tool that's useful to us. Can you see the application with us in God? Without certain trials, without certain difficult situations, we'd be basically useless to God. But these trials build our faith. They make us lean on God and learn to seek Him. Job learned much more about his faith going through all the terrible things that he went through than he ever could have living a peaceful, easy life. They serve to make us stronger, more faithful, more able to help those who need it. How many times have you been a rough, in a rough situation and you've been comforted by someone who says, Yeah, I've been there too. I've gone through the same thing you're going through. I've been there too. And let me tell you, you're going to make it through this. Yeah. Going through tough times, you can be a comfort to others. Okay, why does a good God let bad things happen? Even apart from building character, on a purely physical level, pain itself can be very good and even healthy when you touch a hot pan. Okay? The pain that you feel briefly warns you, saying, hey, if you keep touching me, this hot thing, you're going to really hurt yourself. Whatever damage you've done to yourself touching the hot pan briefly will be greatly uh, greatly expanded if you continue to touch this. So it tells you, hey, stop touching this hot thing. Okay? It saves you more pain. Okay? Tightness in your chest. Could that possibly be good? Could that possibly warn us of a, a heart condition? Yeah. yeah. What about the pounding in your head when you wake up after uh, a night drinking? Could that possibly uh, push you in the direction of hey, maybe I shouldn't drink this alcohol anymore. Could, could that be the case? Yes, absolutely. And, and on and on we can go, okay? If you were to feel no pain, either physically or emotionally, after you did something you were not supposed to do, this world would indeed be a very, very dangerous place for you. Okay? That's, that's, I believe there's even a rare disease where uh, children or people can't, feel pain and they don't really have very long life expectancies. They, they 
break legs and they don't know it. They're walking and make, making even more damage. And it's a variable, very terrible situation. Okay? So pain is good and even healthy. Okay? Third, uh, in answering this question, suffering reminds us, as we often sing, that this world is not our home. Raise your hand if you've never had an ache or a pain. Or, okay, yeah. Those aches, those pains, when you throw out your back, that serves to remind us that these bodies are temporary. That serves to remind us that we have something to look forward to. Why does a good God let these things happen? It reminds us to use the time that we have here on earth wisely. Okay, we don't know how long we'll be here. We know that however much time we have, it's fleeting. Okay, And the aches and the pains and all the things that we go through help us to remember that. Okay, We learn to lean on God for strength. Our pain, if we endure it, causes us to draw nearer to God. It makes us vividly aware of our frailty. Okay, And it helps us to keep our focus where it ought to be, on God. Do I want to suffer? Absolutely not. Okay, no way. But if it prepares me to get to heaven, if it can prepare my soul for heaven, then I'll endure it if I have to. Absolutely. There are many other reasons we could get into, but for the sake of time, we'll move on. Question two. Question two. Why does God punish many people for the sins of one person? How many times can we think of in the Old Testament where one person sins and then the whole nation is punished, or one person sins and the whole family is punished. We we uh, it brought to my mind Achan in Joshua chapter seven. What did Achan do? Well, he took something he wasn't supposed to take. Okay, he took some stuff he was not supposed to take, and then what happened? His entire family paid the price. Okay, or we think of David. David sinned in taking a census of the people in Second Samuel twenty four, and and what happened there? 70,000 people died because of that. Okay? How can we harmonize that with a God that we read about in the Bible being just? Okay? We, we know that God is just. It says in Psalms chapter 7, verse 11, God is a just judge. Psalm 33 and verse 5, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Okay? How can we harmonize these two things? If one people does something wrong, it seems to me that that person should be punished. Not his whole family, not the nation. Okay? So how do we harmonize these two? Can you see yourself being asked this in a Bible study? How would you answer? If we, if we look back to the story of Achan, okay, the account of Achan, his whole family was punished. Okay? And the 70,000 people who, who died because of David taking the census, they were punished along with David. What was likely the case is that they had some part in the sin as well. And if not that specific sin, then some other sin, absolutely. We know in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay. And even if that's not the case, let's, let's just say for the sake of argument that Achan's children, every single one of them was perfectly righteous and just and good and, and didn't sin and they did everything in obedience to God and, and on and on. Okay? And, and the 70,000 people who died, they just absolutely were faithful to the end and they served God and never sinned and, and it, it's just for the sake of argument grant that. Okay, fine. 
What if that was the case? If that was the case, they were completely righteous, then would their death be a punishment? Would their situation in their death be improved or downgraded? We know what happens to righteous people when they die, don't we? Yes, we do. They, they go to paradise. If these people were righteous and they died, fine. Their situation is greatly improved. Okay? There, there is nothing uh, that cannot be harmonized with God's justice in punishing people, like in the case of Achan, in the case of David, and in a number of other situations we can look at. Okay? The fact that nothing is really written regarding these other people, Achan's family and the 7,000 people, nothing's really written regarding their specific involvement and the, the situations we're looking at, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because everyone has sinned and, and in some way deserves whatever punishment comes to them. Okay? And even if they were righteous, they also get what they deserve because if they've been serving God they only have a reward waiting for them. This is, this is no difficult question at all. The two harmonize perfectly. Okay? Question number three. Here's an interesting one. This, this one question, or questions that sort of grouped around this type of uh, thought, is perhaps the most commonly asked question by people outside the church. Okay? Someone has never obeyed the gospel. It's probably because they're asking at least one of these questions, sort of in this group. Okay? Here we go. Why did God have to take a week to create everything? Why couldn't he, if he was all-powerful, just snapped his finger and and everything was here? Why did he have to take that long? Why did God have to make Eve out of the rib of Adam and put Adam to sleep and all this stuff? Why couldn't he just, okay, Adam and Eve, there they go. If if God was all-powerful and and he knew how often people would twist the scriptures and how people don't really like reading, it, why, why would he make us read some book instead of just sending some angel down to just tell us everything we, or just zap us with all the knowledge we need to know? Why couldn't God do it that way instead of the way God did it? And there, there's a lot of different questions we can go on and on about this. So why didn't God do it this way? Why did he have to do it this other way? Okay, and these are great questions. Okay? For questions like these, the first thing we have to do, we have to realize what is being asked. What is actually being asked? Okay? What is really being asked is, a lot of times, why didn't God do something the way I would have done it? Why isn't God more like me? When, when someone is asking this kind of question, they're putting themselves in the place of God. They're saying, I'm, smart, I'm smarter than him. If God really was as wise as he says he is, he would have done it my way. Okay? He, should have, he should have done it this way if, if he knew what was best for him. That's, that's ultimately what, what the person who's asking these questions is saying, aren't they? Why didn't God do it this way? Why couldn't he have done it this way? That's what they're saying. They're saying, God, I'm smarter than you, so you didn't do it my way, therefore I'm not going to follow you, I'm not going to believe in you, and I'm going to go do my own thing since I'm smarter than you anyway. That's what's being said. Okay. This kind of question really is very easy to answer. So, And I'm not just going to answer it because I'm an artist and, and stuff like that. I'm going to give you an illustration. Okay. I'm going to give you an illustration. And this, this is a situation that anybody who has, who has a driver's license can uh, understand, I think. Okay. Imagine we are driving with someone. 
Okay, we're driving with someone in the car. Okay, we're all we're all in the car. It's a big car. Okay, um, and someone else is driving. Okay, and and we know that the turn that we have to make is coming up. So we say, hey, driver, uh, get over in the left left lane. You're going to have to make the turn soon. Okay, if you keep going, you, you you're going to the, the shortcut's this way. So uh, make sure you get over the left hand lane. Uh, so, so you can make the, the turn, okay? But they, they just keep going. They, they don't change lanes. And, they say, and, and we say, well, hey, you, you just missed the turn. The, the shortcut is this way. You, now we're, it's going to take twice as long because we have to go all the way around in traffic. And, okay? and then, then the driver keeps going. And then all of a sudden, he slams on the brakes. And the, there's a green light. There's a green light. There's no cars coming. There's a green light. The driver slams on the brakes, comes to a dead stop. And you say, hello, okay? It's a green light. That means go. Green means go. Okay. So the driver, though, doesn't listen to our sage uh, backseat driving advice. wonder why. As it happened, they noticed a motorcycle in the lane, so they couldn't change lanes anyway. But to top it off, the, the driver noticed that there was a road construction sign on our, our uh, lovely shortcut. So the shortcut actually would, would have taken much longer, so the driver decided not to, to do that. And, and regarding the green light, the driver noticed something that we didn't. The driver saw that there was an ambulance barreling on the cross street. And if he hadn't have stopped, uh, the ambulance would have crashed into your side of the car, so he saved you a lot of uh, pain so what's the point? What's the point? It's easy to recognize that sometimes we don't have all the information to make the best decision. We don't, like our, our backseat driver, sometimes when someone's backseat driving, they're telling you all this stuff when you, the driver, actually sees more of what's going on. You have mirrors and stuff, and you know, you're looking around. We don't always listen to backseat drivers, and, and a lot of times we tend to think of backseat drivers as, you know, kind of annoying because they're trying to make decisions of what's best, right, when they don't have all the information. You can see the parallel, though, can't you? Why didn't God do it this way? I think this way is better. Well, you don't have all the information, do you? God has a little bit more information, to say the least, than I have uh, about any given situation. Okay, Isaiah 55. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 55. It's a passage that I'm sure is familiar to many of us. Okay, Whether we like it or not, or, or even understand it, there's great wisdom in what God does and, and how he does it as well. Isaiah 58, uh, 55, sorry. Uh, we'll start at verse 8. Isaiah 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are, my, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is a lot smarter than I am, and, and I would even stretch to say, he might be a little bit smarter than you. Okay. Right? Yeah. He, he's, he's a lot smarter than I am. So what's best for me is perhaps, maybe, possibly, for me to sit back and let God do the driving. Right? God, why didn't you do it this way? There was wisdom in whatever God chose to do. 
Question number four. Question number four. Why did God create human beings to have a sinful nature? Hmm. Why does God predestine some to be saved and some lost? These are great questions, but these kinds of questions come out of a misunderstanding or an ignorance of what the Bible actually teaches. Okay? We know from Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Mankind certainly does not have a sinful nature. That's foreign to the Bible. We do not inherit our sins from our parents. So where does sin come from? Okay, where does it come from? James chapter 1, we learn in verses 14 and 15. James 1, 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Sin comes from our own desires. My sin comes from my desires and my temptations and following all of that stuff. Not from my parents. My dad is not perfect. My mom's not perfect. Okay? But I didn't get any of my sins from them. They didn't get any from me. Okay? It's not, it's not a disease. It's not the flu or something like that. Okay? That's not how it works. Why does God predestine some to be saved and some to be lost? He doesn't. Okay, quite simply, he doesn't. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus 2 Starting at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us uh, from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So what God, what God did decide beforehand is that people would need salvation. He knew that from the get-go. Okay? He knew that from the get-go. And that Jesus would need to come to earth and die so that we could be saved. He, that's what he, he predestined. He predestined not the individuals who would be saved and who would be lost. He predestined the plan that would let individuals, whoever wills, to be saved or to be lost. Okay, so question five. Question five, we're, we're wrapping up. We're coming towards a close. Shouldn't God want us to reach him through our reason rather than unthinkingly through blind faith? This is a good question. This is another good question. Shouldn't God want us to reach him through our reason rather than unthinkingly through blind faith? What would you answer to that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. 100% yes. Okay. This question, though, like the previous uh, set of questions, is based upon an ignorance of the Bible teaching. Okay. Popular culture has done something interesting. Okay. Popular culture today has redefined faith from 
this biblical definition. Popular culture has redefined faith from a, a conclusion based upon facts and evidence and reason to, you know, that, that's the biblical definition of faith, to a conclusion drawn without evidence. I don't have any evidence, but I have faith. Okay? I have faith. Or, I know what the evidence says, but in spite of all the evidence, I've got faith. That's, that's, that's faith to, to, to people today, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It sure is. But we've redefined faith as we read in the in the Bible. Okay, it's a terrible turn of events, but that's that's just um, where we're living today. When Jesus taught something, ask yourself, what did he do? When Jesus taught something, and when his disciples taught things, what did they do? Did he just make wild or baseless statements and expect people to to believe him in the absence or in spite of the evidence? Is that what Jesus did? No, no, absolutely not. Did, did Jesus spend time with people, studying with them, reasoning, giving explanations, logical arguments, even offering the strongest proof that can be offered, miracles, to confirm who he was and what he was saying is truth? Isaiah chapter 1. A verse familiar to uh, a lot of us, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. First Thessalonians 5:21. Test all things, hold fast what is good. First John chapter 4 and verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. How much of this indicates to you that God just wants us to believe whatever? without evidence or in spite of evidence. No, the exact opposite. He gave us our logical minds. He gave us the ability to reason and to think and, and take in evidence and, and weigh it. And He expects us to use it. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says something very interesting. I want to see if you notice it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to look at the first two verses. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, Finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Did you notice it? Did you notice it? There are two kinds of people uh, being described here in verse 2. On one side, we have the unreasonable person, someone who will not listen to reason, someone who rejects logic and evidence and proof. That's the unreasonable person. And on the other side, who do we have? The person with faith. The person with faith, faith rather, is tied to reason. People who are unreasonable are called faithless. Do you see what Paul's saying there? Biblical faith is the exact opposite of blind faith. It's the exact opposite of popular of the popular definition of faith. 
There, uh, in Acts chapter 17, verse 2, Paul, did, he, Paul was uh, a very logical, reasonable person. Uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 2, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. Jump down to verse 17 of chapter 17. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers in the marketplace daily, those who happened to be there. Uh, go over one chapter in Acts 18, Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. We could go on and on. Indeed, we are Christians not because of blind faith, not due to a lack of evidence, not, not even in spite of the evidence. We are Christians because it is the only logical thing we can be. We have taken in the evidence, we have weighed it. We have listened to the arguments. The only logical thing to do is believe that God exists, to follow him, and to do what he would have us to do. We are Christians not in spite of the evidence, but because of it. Question number seven. Question number six. If God is loving, why doesn't he answer my prayers? If God is loving, why does he not answer my prayers it's another good question and this is one that um, very likely could be asked of me or you so how do we answer it one passage some of you might already be turning there Isaiah 59 the first two verses behold the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear but but your iniquities have separated you from your God your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not.
been concerned about been concerned about
wind lifted high amid that wild and savage truth. Nor heard we that imploring cry, forgive 